My name is Dan Walker and you're listening to the Walker Talks Coaching Podcast. I'm a student studying sports science, coaching and physical education at Loughborough University. And on the podcast, we talk to leading practitioners, coaches and educators in their field on topics from managing egos to team culture. Welcome to the Walker Talks Coaching Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my guest. He has over 100 appearances for Millwall. He's even a world record holder and he's a QPR super fan and legend, as well as being the current technical director at the Bahamas FA. It is Mark Bircher. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Cheers, Dan. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. No worries. Really, really glad to have you on. I think we'll start off, um, you've been doing a bit of coaching since you finished your playing career. Can you just talk about the reasons, uh, maybe the inspiration of why you went into coaching after you finished playing and how did you deal with that transition from being a player to now to then being a coach? Well, uh, it, it'll go back to how I got into it. It was always my plan, just growing up, watching QPR, supporting QPR, wanting to play for QPR and then going into coaching, I think even at a younger age watching it, I think it helped my dad being a footballer. He was a footballer and he got injured when he when he played football it cut his career short. He was and then he became a coach, a, a youth coach. And I think you just see it through the see the see the game through different eyes when someone's talking to you about football. So we'd go as fans to watch it but it'd talk about the the technical side of it from players and even at, in a really young age with Terry Venables, you look back at QPR when they used to play and it was a different style and the offside traps and all these, these set pieces. And just when I played, I always wanted to, to go into coaching straight afterwards. And Ian Holloway was a, a big help with that because when I was playing with Ian, I was 24, 25. And then he said, look, Birch, have you, done your co- have you thought about doing your coaching badges? Because I think you'll be a really good coach when you do and your playing career so at 24 I started my C licence and then managed to be fully qualified at 31 when I passed my pro licence and luck, uh, had luck or unluck would have it then that's it when I finished my career at 31 and then because I had all my badges I managed to get uh, the Houston job at QPR straight away afterwards so, and then that's when my coaching professional career started Excellent. So I think as well, um, with people being football fans and then they look at football, I definitely think when you become a coach, you definitely see it from, as you said, from a completely different side and perspective. But maybe that influence from your dad when you said you were going to watch QPR, you were seeing it almost from a coach's perspective at a young age anyway. So it, it yeah, yeah no, definitely. Like when you've got someone who knows, because. I was always a centre midfielder and used to say, look, go watch watch the midfielders, don't just watch the game. And not just, it's hard when you're QPR when you're sucked in as a, a young lad and you're just watching the attacks. But then later on, and then but when it was other teams playing, he'd say, look, just watch the midfielders. And uh, I'll never forget, I, I wanted to be like, John Byrne was my hero at QPR, a skillful number 10 centre forward, and Les Ferdinand, a big, powerful centre forward, super quick great in the air and I was thinking, yeah yeah I could be a centre forward and I'll never forget my dad he's like no no you, you'll, you'll never be like them son he said what do you want to do you want to watch David Batty you could be like David Batty and I'm like I don't want to be like David Batty I want to be like them up front and he was like no 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 watch David Batty watch midfielders like that because that's the type of footballer that you'll probably be and 
saying that to a 12, 13-year-old, so just killed their dreams a little bit, but, he's, <laughs> but he, he could see it from a technical side of it, what type of play I was going to be, and he managed to point me in that direction. I always liked David Batty, to be fair, but not as much <laughs> as their third man in job, but... Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think young players, <laughs> young fans, always want to be the goal scorers, don't they? Well, all the all the wingers taking on the men, doing all the fancy tricks. But yeah, to look back yeah. and then and see where you would fit in 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 the future is is great to but hear. Saying saying that, like you look for it in different eyes as the fan when you're looking at football, but it's the same when you come to a player. You speak a lot of these players do say when they take their coaching badges, they realise, for this coaching stuff's not as easy. And you get some players that, even on the B's and A licences, that they played all these games in his career and they get so nervous about taking the, the, the training sessions when they first do it. And luckily, I never I never suffered from nerves when I played or when I started coaching. But some lads are just terrified to start with. And then some lads that, when I was coaching, and then they start doing their coaching badges, they give, oh, yeah, we, we, give, we give coaches a lot of stick, but it's a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, when it when it's flipped around, I guess maybe because when you're a player, you're within a group, aren't you? And maybe you can hide away in that sense sometimes. But as yeah. a coach, and and, just, and, uh, and with Ian Holloway, what he used to do as well, he used to when we were players, he used to make us take sessions. So again, like you can learn a lot more by doing. So say if it was it picked me and someone else, or Kevin Gallen, or me and another midfielder, and say, look, you're taking a midfield session tomorrow, so plan it, and you've got to coach it. And probably a bit ahead of his time that way, and and then you do you, you realise about different uh, coaching styles or how you're putting it across, and you, some people learn more by doing it. So yeah, so that was the start of the coaching because he used to he used to let us take sessions. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's definitely very forward thinking, as you said. I know Bielsa at Leeds, he gets his players to do presentations like opposition opposition analysis and all that sort of stuff which definitely yeah. helps them prepare. But it makes them understand it a lot more as well. And, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, because I, we used to do that as well with QBR. Like, you'd say, look, tell us, either self-analyse your own game or analyse the opposition and what you're going to do. So especially with all the technology now and especially the way the, the, the kids are growing up now with all technology, it's sometimes a better way of connecting them and a better way of getting them engaged. Brilliant, yeah. So moving on now, what do you think, um, or maybe when you started, or even now, what do you think the hardest thing for you about coaching is? Uh, the hardest thing for me when I first started was realising not everyone can do it how i done it. So when i done it, it was, it was a bit survival of the fittest and... Uh, it, it, it was as a youth team player. It was it was army marine like where they treat <laughs> treat you bad, and then you've got to come through it. If because especially when I was at Mill, it was make them or break them. Because if you couldn't take like a coach or someone else being nasty, you ain't going to take ten fifteen thousand abusing you. So it was it was that way. And then in my mindset was I always wanted to be a footballer. And the way my dad brought me up was. I didn't really have a game for him until I was about 23 because if I did play well, he'd give it, you play well today, but you gave the ball away in the 23rd minute, you lost the header in the 30, and the bar would last for about an hour. And so, the, my mindset, when people 
uh, was negative towards me. It used to spur me on, and I was just so focused on being a footballer, and I could I'd go out running myself. I'd, I'd go everything you could do to try and get the edge. I used to do, and I used to think right. That made me a professional. So when I'm going to take these young lads, that's how it's going to do. But it's it's a different horses for different courses. You find out how some lads react better with different types of coaching, with one-on-one, with an arm around the shoulder. And that, that was the hardest thing for me, where dealing with different players' attitudes, it was, it was I had to change because the young lads have changed and just dealing with that and then having a deal and then when you become in the pro game what I found hard is dealing with players that are not really that interested because I could never get med around it because you've got the greatest job in the world you're getting paid well and you're not really that bothered that used to it still does now drive me crazy yeah do you think it's generational in terms of uh, the different styles of approaches from coaches and the, how the players react do you think it's different uh, when you were playing do you think the majority of players uh, would have taken it well in comparison to now well they probably didn't take it well but then they didn't make it yeah. so, so and I'm, I'm still a believer in some of that now with the new academies coming up you get young lads and you can't be negative towards them you have to give them a positive sandwich where if they play terrible, you can't tell them they play terrible. You have to say, oh, young Johnny, you didn't play well today, but you're a really good, oh, yeah, you're a really good player. You can do better next week. When, like, that's not football, really. You have to deal with discipline. If you're a footballer, over 50% of your career is disappointment. Whether it's injury, whether it's not winning, you can't win the league or get promoted every year. So it's dealing with disappointments and... And I think that's what makes a really good player. So, yeah, the old school was old school, but like a lot of generations, I think we can take bits of that old school and merge it with, with the new school because I think the generation that will come up maybe have had too much of an arm around their shoulder and it's it's going that way. So, yeah, I, I, bet, I bet every generation says that. I bet my dad, my granddad was saying that to my dad. His generation's too weak. But I, I think definitely... Now, you'll see coaches, which they do use in more technology, because I've got a, I've got a teenage son, he's, he's 17, and that generation don't really have conversations. They're texting, email, Snapchat, whatever it is, they're constantly on there, on their own. They can talk on Xbox with a headset on, but actually sit down and have conversations. These This younger generation, they struggle to do that with interaction, so... As we said, with, with technology and showing them clips and stuff like that, that that's how you're connecting with them. So I think it's only, well, unless mobile phones get banned, I, don't, I think it's only going to go that way even more. Yeah, that is definitely true. I know if you go on the bus, you just see everyone just, no one talks to each other, everyone just sits down, goes on the phone. You can imagine, you know, 20, 30 years ago, everyone would go on the bus well, and you'd be talking to people. Yeah, and oh, yeah the bus journeys used to fly by because you, it used to be brilliant. You have so much fun. But it's same the changing rooms. You've seen the changing rooms change completely because you get in the changing room, the first thing in the morning used to be, it, that, that used to be the social side of it. You know, they talk about the four corners and social being one of them. And that was a massive thing for us. That, and, and I think... Any good team that you have is a good social interaction and chemistry, camaraderie, whichever by team spirit, whatever you want to call it. Every successful team has that. So it, it's, it's Cubs finding a way of how to get that back, whether it's 
they say team bonding, team building days and and building relationships. Hundred percent. How did you find you went? You've done a bit of coaching in America, and you're now in the Bahamas. Yeah. How do you find the different cultures in comparison to? Because you played your whole career in England. How did you find coaching yeah. in different countries? Well, do you know what? I found the, the culture differently when I went to Canada, and we and I was at Millwall Centre Field, a four-four-two combative. I like to be a one-on-one battles, and then we played teams like. Guatemala or Cuba <laughs> thinking we're better at these and they'd keep the ball for about 10-15 minutes and playing in the heat and um, and then it, it taught me about possession more where in League One on the Championship it was like up in their faces and then when you got a camera you didn't want to get that ball away because you didn't want to be chasing it in the heat for about 10 minutes and all them players were really good tech and so as, when I come back my game changed a little bit not too much but uh, just a little bit but uh, internationally you respected possession a bit more and then well with coaching as well when I went across and coached in America the American lads are all super fit and how can I say they're, they're the coachability of them, they, they want to soak it in and they want to work hard, like standard, they're fit and strong because they get that from their college. But what I found it, football maturity, they were three or four years behind because they go... But when I first went there, they're saying this rookie's a, he's a good player, he's a good prospect. I'm looking at him thinking, yeah, he's, uh, that he's good, he's good physically, he looks good for a 17-year-old, 18-year-old. They're like, no, 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 he's 22, nearly 23. I was like, what? Yeah, well, he's been to college for four years. So it's, it's changing a little bit in America because they're now going into Europe and seeing football or soccer as a career. In uh, the American institution, when an American meets another American, first is watching that, and second one, where you go to college? It's just embedded in their DNA. So until it starts getting rid of that, because they lose four years at college, you could have a college go. We had one lad who was playing left midfield and he was following his player all the way across the pitch I'm like what are you doing no, yeah, no we, we marked man to man in college for four years like followed and so you're missing out on uh, learning from the older players the more experienced players because you're thinking that 23-24 in England you've got like 150 games under your belt mm. and and say so like 23 I'm a QPR and as I said, played under 50 games. This lad's not played a professional game yet. So they, they, they miss out on that. It's hard for them to catch up. And until the States deal with that problem, which they are now, they're, they're a bit like we've done in England and Europe, they're starting to get proper academies and proper youth teams and seeing it as a career. That's that's when they, they kick on. They've suffered a bit, the States, in the last couple of World Cups and qualifications. But they, they start getting back up, especially with getting their lads in Europe like they're doing. Yeah, because you look at it on paper, America obviously being a massive sporting nation, and then you look at the you know the football, the soccer team, and it's it's not on the same level as what their you know their other major sports are. So, it's it, if it's definitely changing, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely for the better. But it, it, it's weird as well because in America, it's never going to beat the uh, the religion that is the big four there: the American football, baseball, basketball, hockey. It's never going to break them. Uh, and, but it's the most played sport up until the age of 16. So people don't realise that in America, football, soccer is the most played sport. But normally if you're good at soccer, you're also good at one of the other sports. 
So if we, we put like when we was at Chicago, we were going to draft Jack Harrison, who's now at Leeds. He was at Wake Uni- University, Wake College, and I think his deal, his four year deal would have been worth something like 200, 300 grand. Where and he was first round draft pick. Now first round draft pick in American football, baseball, and basketball. The first round draft pick is two hundred fifty million. You get wow. so. If you're if you're good at both the sports, you're thinking, oh, okay, I'll probably go for that one because you can get quadruple the amount of money. And you, they, I know soccer does lose a lot to other sports out there. Yeah, you could definitely say that. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if you're if you're talking about maybe a couple of hundred grand difference, it's a couple, a couple of hundred million difference. So that's why they're probably choosing the other sports. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned uh, just then about the styles of play when you were with Canada and then obviously the differences when you were at Millwall and QPR. Yeah. When you went back to your club, um, did you, was, how was the integration of, uh, did you ever try to do any of the styles or was it 100% that is not going to work here? Oh, I got told many. Anyway, to be fair, when I was at Millwall, the manager was Keith Stevens, and Keith Stevens was the club legend, was the captain when I was in the youth team. He was then my reserve manager, and then he was first team manager. And then when I broke into the first team, he weren't manager, it was under Jimmy Nicholl. I ended up playing right back and got my debut there, never played there before. And then I was considered a right back for like two seasons. Then Keith got the job, so I, I, and then he moved me back in midfield because he knew I was a midfielder. But back then, there was no international windows. So when I got called up for Canada, I used to miss Millwall games. And his policy was if the team won the game before, he would play the same team again unless injuries. So I'd sometimes I used to go away with Canada, they would win, I wouldn't get back in the in the team for another two weeks. And then if I got and then if I got in there, if I switched the ball, he used to give it Spurs, stop with all that international crap. <laughs> just play football. I'm like, I just switched the ball. And like, I could just, or if I just passed it back to the centre back, aha, uh-huh, the abuse I used to get off him. If you do that once more, you're sitting next to me here. And I think it was just letting me know, like, I think any excuse you just wanted to throw, stop doing that international shit on the pitch. So, yeah, so I used to get that. But it wasn't till. And coaching, and you play uh, other countries. Like we, we'd be four four two, and then for me, always four four two. QPR four four two, and then when we went to Canada, we was like a three five two. We played, and that's when I realised, wow, I'm not doing hardly, hardly any amount of running in the midfield I do because we've got three in it, and then the other team would have three. So if we before, if we played against the three in midfield, it felt like as a centre midfielder, we'd do. And we used to, I used to hate playing crew because they played inverted wingers and they'd overload the middle. And people would moan at us, you're not getting tight to them. Well, there's five here, you're doing nothing at the back there. And that's when I realised about overload in the midfield. So when I went into coaching, I worked straight away coach and always done a, a type of 4 3 3 to overload the middle. So that's when going abroad helped me realise that. And then it helped me out because it got me a couple of years at the end of my career. Well, to be fair, the last three or four years I didn't sprint because of my hamstrings from my back would always go. So when they made out this defensive midfield role, I thought I'd have a piece of that and then I turned myself into a holding midfielder. So that was nice when, the, when that became fashionable. <laughs> I thought I got a friend McAlaney for that. <laughs> 
Yeah, but no, it's, it's great to hear that experience, and that's you've learned a lot, and then took it into your coaching. In terms of, yeah, well, I, I always, I always wanted to go play abroad, or I nearly moved to LA Galaxy when I left QPR, and uh, but I always wanted to go. I'd say to coaches, go abroad and broaden your horizon. I know I didn't go abroad and learn a different language, but just different cultures, different players, and we end up coaching quite a few South American players, and just an experiences just. It broadens your horizons to the coach, and even if you go and you just learn a couple of things, then it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. You hear about um, Guardiola at the because he played obviously with Barcelona, but then he went out and he he went to um, an Italian club. I think at like a, they weren't very high in the league, but just to learn a different culture and a different style of play. And um, you hear a lot of managers go into a lot of English coaches go to America, don't they? Because um, there's opportunities out there, but they're crying out now because the money in the Chinese Super League, they want a lot of British coaches and stuff like that. So it's definitely worth it to to learn a different styles of play and you can pick up so much yeah definitely but I, I don't think English coaches look after each other as much as they should like from working abroad and working FIFA and you're going these A licenses I'm like if if a, if a Dutch coach gets a job abroad he takes a lot of Dutch coaches with him if a, a German or Italian go abroad a, a Portuguese manager goes abroad he brings a lot of Portuguese managers and helps them get jobs I think as English or British coaches we don't do that as much we go abroad and we sort of just do the job where especially on our A license uh, sorry on my pro license we went to Zurich and we put on a session and it was just the German Swiss and the French and all the coaches and players voted us as the, the best sessions we put on because they was high tempo. And they were just so surprised with the English coaching because we get labelled as the 4-4-2, like high tempo, get, get it in there, no possession, where it's so so not like that now with the, the English coaches. And we get that's the stigma from the past. And I, I do think and believe that we should blow our own trumpets and, and look after uh, coaches from from our countries as well because we're, we're a lot better than what people do give us credit for around the world yeah with the english or the england dna within the coach education there's definitely been a shift in styles and i think yeah some countries still see us as the as the long ball big center forward knock it down as you said four four two but it's definitely changing and uh and yeah in terms of bringing coaches with you to to different locations i guess it would be um, the, the English coaches don't maybe don't do that as much. So if you if you do need an assistant technical director in the Bahamas, um, <laughs> I'm always here. Yeah. But, um... well, I've, I've got you locals at the minute. <laughs> I've, 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 now I've said that, I've got to help people out. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So um, just touching on there, obviously uh, you've got the you've got the world record with Canada. Um, yeah. Being the first player to score for the country and never stepping on the the home soil. What was yeah. the fans' reaction in terms of did they accept you, the Canadian fans, or or not? Yeah, they did. I was a bit like a little bit of a cult hero with them because maybe because of the type of person I was and the type of interviews I used to give. I think they were so used to the regimented American type interview or the Canadian type interview where you got to say the right stuff, and I would just be myself, and, and I think they quite liked it. And and as I said, out that squad. 
Canada's a melting pot of anyway of any cultures. Normally, you've come from a different country, your parents. But yeah, I think all the players were were born in Canada, and I was the only one that wasn't. So yeah, a little bit of a cult hero and the type of character I was. They they sort of they sort of took me in, which was lovely, and I still have a really a really soft spot in my heart for Canada. But they they know I was an Englishman playing for Canada. I didn't I, I didn't pretend to be otherwise. I played for Canada because I weren't good enough to play for England, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I did get I did get called up for Wales before till they realised my granddad was born in Winnipeg, not Wales. So <laughs> yeah, it was good. No, oh, brilliant. So um, you mentioned a lot of uh, Ian Holloway there. Was he your favourite manager, or did you have a did you have a different favourite manager when you were playing? Uh, I'm no, I'm just, like people like Frank Yellow. He coached me with Canada. He was a great a great bloke, but. Coaching, when I coached under people, I've coached under Mark Hughes, Harry Redknapp, uh, Neil Warnock, Jim McGilton was brilliant at QPR, and I've worked for other managers, but I just think as a person, like Ian Holloway, just, he's, he's like family to me now, but just a, just as a person, one of the most honest people you'd ever meet, and look, we go on about coaching, and coaching's great, tactics great, and all that, sessions is great, but it's the person you are, like, as a coach, the most important, the most important thing as a manager or head coach is you've got to get your players wanting to play for you, and that's when I've that's how I've seen managers Ian Holloway, Neil Warnock do really well with it, and that's why I've seen other managers do really poor with it. You can be the best manager with the best ideas with the best coaching sessions, if you don't engage your squad of players and they want to play for you, then you're in trouble. And I think that's what Ian Holloway was so good at. He didn't get a lot of squad. He didn't get a team of players wanting to play for him. He got a squad of 15, 16 that wanted to do well, but wanted to do well for him. It was a bit like letting your parents down when you didn't play well because because of the character is he's bubbly. And then when you see him sad or you see him disappointed, it's like oh, we don't know. We want him to be back. We want him to be bubbly and happy. And then and that's what the effect he had on his players. I think you speak to whatever club he's been at. That's what he's been like. But again, going back to what I touched on, coaching, you don't have to reinvent the wheel as coaches. Like To have a successful team, it hasn't changed in, I don't think, 50 years. You have to be, you have to be fit. You have to be well organised with a good team spirit. And if you have that, then you'll be, if you're in the league, you'll be, you'll be in the top, the top half of the league. You'll win more games than you lose. And then, on top of that, then your tactical knowledge and then your personality as a coach will, will shine through. But I, I do think, especially I go on some of these courses and presentations and I've been in football all my life and sometimes it confuses me with the terminology and how, how they're trying to reinvent the rule. So I, I always try and like to go back to simplicity and... That's if you go back to what I said there about having a successful team and the main thing as a coach, get the players wanting to play for you. And, and what I say to coaches coming through now as well, ask yourself, would you have enjoyed that session if you was a player? Because I see some coaches, it's all about them stop, start, tap. You can still do that, but still have your training session enjoyable. And I've always tried to think like that. The, the sessions I put on would I've enjoyed that or would my kids have enjoyed to do that session 
some brilliant messages there. Even the the simplicity of being fit, organised, and having a good team spirit is one hundred percent key. That's any level. I mean, you're talking about from under sixteen to Sunday league to your pub team to 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 look at Liverpool. Like you look at Liverpool, and I've got friends who really good friends with James Milner, and we was in America, and he they was having pre season there, and spoke to him, and they were running like after. Like when clock coming, what's the difference? He just used to run them, like run, run, run. And people talk about Klopp and how good he is, but you look at him. He's got he's got a good personality. He's got a squad of players that want to play for him, and they are fit as and can run. So if you look past the skills and what he buys and the players, still that's the that's the base of that Liverpool squad. Definitely, and you hear, I've done a, a few of these interviews and you talk to somebody and you, you ask them about their favourite coaches and when they mention them, they never say, oh, he had the best tactics or he, you know, he, was, he was a really good technical coach. They always say he could connect with players the best. He, he, he had that best connection. He wants to run for a brick wall for him every week and didn't want to let him down. And, that, and that's true. And if you can get that team spirit as well, as you said, along with the fitness and the organisation, you're not going to go far wrong. No, definitely. And as a coach, like again with your personality, that that's a massive thing for your sessions. Like I, you can put three people do exactly the same sessions, exactly the same time, put the exact same message out, but it's the one that uses his voice in the session, whether it, like picks it up at the right time and uh, um, and he demands out of his players at the right time, but can also have a laugh and a joke with the players and it. Again, your personality is what makes that session. It's not the session itself. It's not the rules or the stipulations you put in it. It's how you project that session. Yeah, 100%. That's brilliant. In um, in terms of your playing career now, you played for QPR and you're a QPR fan. How did you deal, if you'd lost a game, with other players in the team who weren't not QPR fans? You would have taken that hurt a lot more than they would. How did you deal with that? Yeah, I'm sure, well, again, it was a bit, when I like, played for Millwall and you'd lose and you'd be gutted, but your first question after is how did QBR get on? You'd find out how QBR got on. But if QBR, if you lost, that's it. You've got nothing to pick you up a little bit. And it won't, it won't, it was, so what, when you lost or you didn't, the game didn't go well, the, the initial reaction is the same as it is for any other team. It's only after that you start thinking, God, it's QBR and I've had phone calls from all 25 family members, what's going on? And you had the pressure there. And uh, I remember one time when I played, Gary Waddup was manager and it was, a, and it was a summer where they wanted to sell players and they wanted to sell me, but then I didn't agree to go to places. And it was a... I was falling out with the chairman, Gianni Palladini, and then I refused to go, so then I weren't in the team, and then I come back in the team. So anyway, I come back in the team. And then, I'll never forget it, I was at the shop, I went to go get something out of the shop, and then there was like a couple of little kids, I think there was 10 or 11, we were bottom of the league, and they were like, yeah, you're rubbish, cute girl, you're bottom of the league, and that. And do you know what, it really affected me, like, you know, you're boiling inside. And I just remember, that the next game was Colchester away. And we were like 2 0 down at half time, and some lads just awful. And I remember losing it at half time. Give like the manager didn't even let the manager speak, giving it, it's a disgrace. How can you be bothered with bottom of the league? Blah blah blah. And just that I think 
that was one of the main times my frustration come out as a player and a fan because like you don't care about people abusing you know, I blew my hair so like every time Dick and Harry knew he was but so it, but it was just a personal like yeah we are bottom league I don't think it's hurting you lot as much as it should and then I just lost it I went in like a 10 minute drive like half abusing everyone and just walked out and waited on the, the centre circle so I think that's the only time it boiled over and I, I think I, I felt it more as a coach because when you're coaching your team's not doing well and your players are not doing as much it's funny it's like you seem like you've got less control of it as a player as I said as a player I never got nervous but as a player I thought I could control the game more I, it's weird as a coach once that game starts you're funny enough on the game day you have less control than you have you can make subs and and, and have some decisions but how that game starts is it's all like out your hand once you've set them up and gone so yeah but it, yeah it did mean it did mean a lot more playing for Cuba and I think when, when I left and I knew I was injured I think uh, I, I, I knew that was the end of my career really and you shouldn't and uh, I've tried to get back with injuries and stuff but I just think there was a big part of it just didn't feel the same Yeah it's a great asset though it must have been for QPR having you playing for them and, and having that drive and that determination already without the other players would have been maybe slightly different but you you would have died for the club in, in that sense so that must have been a great asset for the club and then when you're a coach, I 100% understand that. That's where I think the phrase when people say that you know the coach makes his money in the training on the match day, it's all on the players, isn't it? Once they step over that white line, it's it's all on the players. So there is that that uh, lack of control feeling, but maybe it becomes because you can't physically affect the game. Uh, you know, you you can't kick that ball for them, but you you can just do as much as you can behind the scenes. But when once they're out on the pitch, it's completely different. So, yeah, and and we would, and it's about policing. And like, and like when I say about good successful teams, the good successful teams they police themselves, they police their own dressing room. As in, the players take care of the discipline and having a, the like we had it with QPR. I had it Mill really when I was there. We had a young team and we policed ourselves, so there weren't many fines or managers didn't really have to have a word with players when they stepped out of line because we done it. And at QPR. We was lucky that we had, there, there was me who was a, we had supporters, Lee Cook, Martin Rowlands, Adam Miller was a young lad who joined was a QPR sport, but then we had two QPR fanatics, me and Kevin Gallen, so more than supporters, just fanatics, loved the club, and Ian Holloway could be the nice guy, really, because we would be on anything if anyone stepped out of line and weren't doing that well, we was on them, just to remind them, this is not how we, this is not how it's done and how much it means to us, and it, it did give us an extra edge. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And yeah, it's that uh, team accountability, isn't it, that they're taking control. As a manager, it's perfect when that happens and that's what you, you'll be striving for, to get the team to, as you said, police themselves, take control, take ownership and then the manager's got a bit more of an easier job in that sense. Yeah, well, then the manager and the coach can concentrate on <laughs> manager and coach and not having to find too many players if the players take care of it. Exactly. How do you think um, a young Mark Bertram play, player would have done with VAR? How would he have handled it? Absolutely awful. I would have been, <laughs> I would have been sent off every game, I think, because I was from an era that yeah, a young player, I was brought up on the dark arts and getting that extra psychological edge. And I see people now, what they're getting sent off for, that's 
in real time without using the AR. So I would have had to have, got, <laughs> I'd have, had to have gone away, uh, thrown all the plans away, and just re- redone a new blueprint. To be fair, but uh, as a as as a player now with a new handball rule and everything, it's just outrageous. It's gone. You just you got to think why rules were brought in. The offside rule was brought in to stop goal hanging. So it's not hard. They should just go back to now and saying any part of your body that you can score, it has to be onside. As in, most of your body can be offside, but as long as your foot's in line with the defender, that should be onside. It should be. It should go back to there has to be daylight between to be offside. And then that will clear off so, up so many rules. You could have, like then now, you can have a lot of your little toe be offside, it's offside, where it should work the other way. It should be brought in to give the advantage to the attacker. And so it should be, you only have to have a tiny bit of your little toe onside for it to be a goal. And then that's easy. And and handball has to go back with, did you stop it deliberately? Or did you make? Did you have your arms in that unnatural position, as in spreading them wide, making yourself bigger to stop a shot? Now that's all it should be. And it's... I say it with people in football, with coaching, but people in football in general, football's a simple game complicated by idiots. And idiots seem to be coming up with these rules to ruin the game. I'm a big believer in VAR because playing with it, coaching, when you've, we've had some all, QBR had awful decisions go against us, like absolutely outrageous over the lines, miles offside. And then when you lose that game because that the frustration you have in you, that's what the VAR was brought in for. And the fourth official that they have on the side, who's just getting abused from both dugouts, he should be behind with a monitor telling them, yes, you've got to look at that. And then it's simple. And if they can't do that, go back to like it is in cricket or in American football out here. Leave it up to the coaches to challenge it. Challenge that decision. You get two a game. And if you get it right, you, you keep your decision. If you get it wrong, you lose it. So you've got to see when it's right or wrong to do it. And as I said, it's it's not hard. Football's a simple game, complicated by absolute idiots. Yeah, it's a big debate at the minute. And I do like the idea of having the the two challenges. I think as well, like it is in rugby, I think the ref should probably be mic'd up so we can listen to what he's saying. It might clarify some things as well. Yeah, but then you might but yeah, then the players. players. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll leave that mic. You can only turn it on to explain it. You <laughs> can't have the mic on during the game. You can only turn it on to explain it. We have to, we have to state that. <laughs> I think it. I think it was um, Arsenal Southampton. There was a game Arsenal Southampton in the nineties when they did it for a trial, uh, yeah, and yeah. and no, he put it, was, it on. Um, it was Millwall. Oh, Millwall was it? Arsenall, Millwall, yeah. Millwall, yeah. Tony Adams called him a cheat, didn't he, David yeah. Ellery? Yeah. So it might go a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't want that. Just to, but they should explain the decision. But they should get interviewed after a game. Oh, 100%. That, that's my biggest argument. What they do, we had some horrendous decisions. I remember one game at Preston. We should have had two penalties. They sent one of our players off that never was. And you can't speak to them for half an hour, 40 minutes after the game. They get in there. What they do, they can then talk between themselves and get their stories right. And then... All they say is, well, yeah, I've got to look it back. I've not seen the replay of it. They should be made to look at the replay and then look, they should come out and say, yeah, I've got it wrong. There's nothing wrong. And, and But you get a letter in the post from the, the referees department saying, yeah, sorry, we got that wrong. Oh, well, brilliant. You just cost us three points. Our job's on the line. But no, oh, you got it wrong. That's handy. Where I've said, I've said to refs before, look, 
I just want to speak to you, even if it's a phone call afterwards, not to abuse you, just to say, look, what did you see there? And then and I think if you was allowed to do that as a manager and speak to the refs properly afterwards, not abusing the accused, just like, and, but if you had personally the ref say to you afterwards, yeah, I've got that wrong, it's my fault. Do you know what? It would go such a long way with coaches because at the minute they're, we see them as being untouchable. Yes, they do make mistakes, but they just say, oh, we made mistakes, sorry, yeah, we'll get it better next time, instead of having that. All the, all the good refs, Mark Housey and uh, Howard Webb and Clattenburg, you could talk to them and they would, them refs would actually like to talk to you afterwards and like maybe have a, a coffee or a tea afterwards and speak about it properly, but they're not allowed to. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think it would help a lot, of, a lot of fans, a lot of players and a lot of coaches if that was the case, but... It doesn't seem like it's going to change to that anytime soon. So, well, um... yeah, I, I, I do think they should get interviewed afterwards because once they've seen it and then they've got it wrong, it just it builds. How can I say it? What, what it does, it makes you dislike them a little bit more because they haven't answered it. Where you don't see them as you don't see them as normal human beings because you do. And it's such a hard job refereeing and being an official, but it would it would be more like a validity factor to them if they come out and said, "Yeah, I got it wrong." Just like like as a player, like it's a player or manager, if you get it wrong, you have to get interviewed. So I don't see the difference in it. Yeah, definitely. I'd, as you said, I'd hate to do it per be a ref personally, but it needs to needs to be a different change. And yeah, the interview thing would uh, would come a long way for a lot of people. If we look at now your current role, your technical director at the Bahamas um, FA, what does that mean day to day? Well, at the minute I'm in quarantine, so because I've got here, I've got about another nine days. So I'm in the hotel, so it's it's Zoom calls and Microsoft calls all the time. But day to day will be I'm really the the three things I'm, I'm having to concentrate on is starting up a set of excellence for the teams. So I'll be in charge of the men's national team, women's national team, U17s and U15s national teams. And then so I've got to start a centre of excellence up. Big push for women's football. I've got to start a women's league here. And then coach education. So just over, overseeing and that and hiring new positions for uh, beaming coaches here to get in a mentorship that way and you know, to run alongside Conga CAF as well. And... We've got an affiliation with the Scottish FA, which is good. There's our sort of big brother and Malcolm, Malcolm Mackay, who's technical director at Scotland, a friend of mine. So that helps us as well. And we're, we're looking to bring a new uh, sponsor in and kit sponsor. So hopefully that, that will help us go a long way. So just, just making it all more professional. And for the men's team as well, that will oversee. It's, a, it's a, a fantastic year for us. We've got World Cup qualifiers in March. We've got, I think, Gold Cup in June, and then we've got uh, Nations League in July. So it very rarely comes all in one year like that, because, but because of post-COVID, that's what it's going to be. So really exciting time. Got a lot, a lot of work to do because I've got a bit of a, a blank canvas to work on. So really good as a as a an, a new TD coming in. You can you can work with people that you that you want, and you can see that's going to help you. And but it's still there's not much infrastructure there, but so you have to build that while you're doing other stuff. So it's a lot of plate spinning at the minute, and a lot of good ideas. And like we've had a lot of good ideas, 
the hardest stuff is the foundations and getting it off the ground and starting starting it. But as as a, a, a technical director, it's another string to my bow as a coach and, and a football person. So again, broadening my horizons and as I say, see what direction it can take me from there. Definitely. Well, it's a it's a exciting time for you and for the Bahamas football generally. There's a lot of positivity and a, a good project going along there. So. Good luck to you, and I'm sure you do very well. Um, it's been great chat- chatting to you, Mark. It's been uh, an interesting journey that you've had so far. I mean, going, starting at Millwall, playing for Canada, um, obviously playing for QPR. Now you're working, well, you're coaching work, and then in the Bahamas, you've even won the Ibiza Cup along the way. Um, so, but yeah, your journey's nowhere near finished yet. There's a lot to come, so I'm looking forward to following it. And if people do want to follow your journey a bit more you're on uh, Twitter at Mark Bircham so M-A-R-C B-I-R-C-H-A-M uh, but yeah brilliant talking to you thank you very much lovely thank you and it's great talking to you and, and keep it going brilliant thank you very much Mark lovely mate cheers And that is it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at WT Coaching or on Instagram at WT underscore coaching.